I've got to be honest with you, church. I, I've got something I need to confess. I, um, I have an issue. And, yeah, I have more than one. Those of y'all that know me, right? But I know, I know. But honestly, I've had this issue my whole life. I really have. And just about the time, I think I finally don't have the issue. I finally just, I've climbed the mountain. I've made it over the top. This thing rears its ugly head. And, and I know I'm probably not the only one in here with this same issue, but, but here's my issue. I really do not like to be told I'm wrong. A lot. None, but none of y'all have that issue, I can tell. That's why y'all were laughing, right? I didn't see any elbows thrown, right? No, I know I'm not the only one. I, I'm not simply talking about getting the answers to questions wrong. I don't like that either, but who does? But I'm talking about when someone points out to me an area where I've messed up in some way. I don't like it. I don't like it. It, it stings when we're told we're wrong. We, we get defensive. We get dismissive. It starts a lot of fights in, in relationships. Hey, you know, you're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're wrong, you know. You ever had that argument this week? <laughs> the reason this happens, there's a reason this happens, right? Uh, 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 we, we see ourselves in a certain way, right? We, we may see ourselves as kind. Or we, may, we may see ourselves as generous. And it, someone points out something we did that was unkind or was selfish, we struggle because that's not who we see ourselves. That's not what we see in our minds. And there's actually a term for this. Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance, being mentally pulled in two directions. And this, this misconception of who we think we are clashes with the reality of who we actually are, and we don't like it. We don't like to be told we're wrong. It's why humanity has spent so much time trying to justify bad behavior. I, I mean, and this is nothing new. Just the new manifestations of this are things like pride parades and divorce parties, right? We just want to justify bad behavior. And it's, it's, the ri it's, it's what caused this rise of this anti-shame culture, which is pretty much just don't tell me that my behavior's wrong. Don't make me feel bad for what I'm doing. Accept me for who I am. Embrace me for what I do, what I say, what I wear, all of it, or you're my enemy. Because I don't want to be told I'm wrong. This, 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 this assault on, on, on people, and it's, it's really the main issue that causes the clash between culture and Christianity, honestly, because Christianity says we have the way. And there's a right way to live. And culture said, hey, don't, say, don't, don't, don't shame me. It's not your business. But, and, and honestly, there is good shame and there's bad shame. And a lot of sh this, this, this issue of shame is not really the issue because there's, there's some guilt tied to this thing. We don't want to be made to feel guilty. But I, I want to warn you guys that today's message is not going to be easy. Um. The subject isn't easy. It's, it's one of those message, messages that looks at the ugliness of life and how it directly affects our relationships with God, and those are never pretty, but we have to consider it 
whether it's difficult or not, because it's too important not to. So we're going to look today at the character of Proverbs that Proverbs calls the sinner. And the sinner is the person that has chosen the path of folly. They've made their decision. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Their wisdom is calling. Lady wisdom's calling. And lady folly's calling. And, you, and, and saying, you've got to choose one of these paths. And the sinner has chosen the path of folly. And there's a lot of names um, throughout the book. Uh, a, a, a lot of sins named throughout the book. But, but first, let's consider who is the sinner in the book of Proverbs. So turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I mean, we have to start somewhere. In Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16, this is a famous passage out of Proverbs. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven, that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. This abomination and hatred here, these are the strongest words possible that could possibly be used for, for this level of hatred that God has for these things. This, it, it describes the entire spectrum of negative emotions that people are capable of tied to this as an abomination of this hate. We, we, we could say that God hates this with the, with the heat of a thousand suns, right? That, that kind of analogy. But I want us to look at this, and I want to challenge you in something today, because talking about God hating sometimes can be a struggle. We spend a lot of time talking about the love of God, and we should spend a lot of time talking about the love of God. I mean, uh, John teaches us that, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and that those who are born of God know God and they love as well. And, but when you consider God's love, that's an attribute. But have you ever considered that God's hate is also an attribute? I don't remember that in the t list of 10 in my theology class. Nobody wants to talk about it. But the reality is, and you know this, anyone with the capacity to love also has the capacity to hate. And that same goes for God because, after all, we're created in His image. Our character comes from Him. And there's other areas, and uh, multiple times in Scripture, it talks about God hating certain things. But there's a Christian cliche, and I've used it, I've probably used it recently, that I think needs to be removed from our vocabulary. And it's this. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. I've heard that. I probably said that in the last year or two. I don't, it's not like my go-to, but I'm sure I've said it. I've used it, but do you know this concept's not actually found in the Bible? It's not. I know, I, I know. You're like, oh, no, yes it is. It's not. It's not. Biblically, it's just not accurate to say that. It's clear from Proverbs 6 that these are not just actions tied to these abominations. These are people. People listed here. Proverbs isn't telling us that God just hates it when people do these things. Proverbs is telling us that God hates the people who do these things. And it isn't just found in Proverbs. Psalm, um, Psalm 5, 5 and 6, it's clear. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evil, all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. 
The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then Psalm 106, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. Now, if you're one of those that believe that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are somehow different, just go read the book of Revelation. Find out what happens at the end of the final judgment of those who don't repent of sin. It's a consistent story, a consistent theme through both Testaments. But I know you're probably sitting there saying, but wait, God told us to love our enemies. And that's true. He did. God told us to love our enemies. But you're not God. I'm not God. God is God. And the hatred of those who sin is directly tied to the holiness of God. And the only way you're going to be able to understand what the Scripture is talking about when it talks about God hating sinners is to view that and understand how holy God is. And he does not have an option because he's perfect He loves perfectly, and because he's perfect, he hates perfectly. It's part of his character. It's part of his nature. God judges the wicked. You cannot. God sends some people to heaven and some to hell. You cannot. God makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. You cannot. And while I see zero value in some wacko church back east grabbing signs that say God hates a certain group of people and walking around, y'all know who I'm talking about. I really don't see the, the value in trying to soften what the Bible says about how God views sinners because even the smallest amount of sin is an affront to a holy God and it deserves God's wrath. That's what his holiness demands. And it's because of this hatred that we can even experience mercy and repent. We, we need God's hatred for our own redemption. And I know that sounds crazy, right? But it's not because if you consider it, We need it as much as his love. It's because of this hatred we experience the mercy because if God didn't hate sin with the passion of 10,000 sons, we would never know his mercy. Now, Proverbs speaks to multiple sins. And we don't have time to cover them all. So I picked five, right? Five of about probably 50. And we're going to look at those five. Uh, and, and because I think for the most part, these five address the kind of, the, these would be like the big five. I mean, that's arguable. But let's take a look. Let's take a look at some of these. Let's, let's first look at greed. This is a fun one. I, I, we looked at the rich man and the poor man several weeks ago, and I'm not going to re-preach those sermons. There would be a little overlap here. But there are some specific warnings in Proverbs about the greedy that I think are worth noting. I really do. Um, the first thing we'll notice about Proverbs and the greedy is that the greedy bring about their own destruction. Whoever's greedy for unjust gain troubles his household. But he who hates bribes will live. Now, this particular proverb, it cuts to the heart of those excuses for immoral behavior tied to greed. For instance, like, like this, this is what this passage is, is revealing to us. A greedy person would say, hey, I'm just trying to provide for my family. I'm just trying to take care of my household. But this Proverbs teaches that greed actually produces the opposite effect. The greedy are bringing trouble and destruction to their household. 
And this issue of bribes, these bribes are, we know what bribes are. They're gifts and exchanges for favors. The word quid pro quo has been thrown out there a lot in the last couple of weeks. If you hadn't been paying attention, this is pretty much what it's talking about. We see this happen in our political system every day. It's why we get so frustrated with different lobby groups and the money they're throwing around. And there's so many rules about gifts from donors and fundraising and travel and tempting to remove bribes from something like politics and level the playing field. And none of us are fools. We just know they've got good at hiding it, right? It's like the football teams and the NCAA, right? If you keep up with college football, college basketball, it's the same thing. We're just, you know, shuffle the money under the table here, under the table there. But that's all tied to greed. It's tied to covetousness. And the reason greed is so dangerous is because it is a monster that never gets full. So Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. The Sheol and Abaddon here represent death and hell, and we could get into some, some a lot tied to this, but we're not. But these, these two things, just as in death and hell is never satisfied, there's always one, there's always another place for another dead person, always another place for one more lost soul. And man is no different. You can never have enough money, never have enough power, never have enough pleasure, never have enough love, and on and on and on. In our greed, we always want more. We win the lottery, and what do we do? We go out and we buy more lottery tickets. Y'all think I'm kidding? Just jump on Google and Google it. You'll find out. Lottery winners buy more lottery tickets. Guy won $700 million three years ago, and the first thing he did was go buy like $10,000 in lottery tickets, right? 700 million is not enough. He's probably already, it's three years ago, he's probably already blown that. All right. And this this concept, honestly, this is pretty much the teaching of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, right? Solomon tried it all. If he could get it, he got it, and it still wasn't enough. He wanted more. That's how he ended up with what, I don't know, some 700 wives and unknown number of concubines and gold. And I mean, if any guy had it, he had it. But these never be satisfied. Greed is a monster that cannot get full. It's a bottomless pit. And if, if we know that our desires are never satisfied then there's a sense it might help us to stop chasing the things that never satisfy and find joy and contentment and satisfaction in Christ. And that's the message of Proverbs here, to follow the path of wisdom rather than the path of greed. And then next we have dishonesty. Now, there are a lot of types of dishonesty that are obvious and, and even in our warped culture, they're still considered wrong. And I think everyone here would agree that dishonesty is bad, right? Right. Dishonesty is bad. Lying tongues, deceit, it's bad. People, people are in this list of abominations from Proverbs 6, the deceitful and the liars. But I, I got to think about this week. I mean, I could, we could jump on, talk about dishonest things that we all are aware of, but I really, studying, reading this week and over the last few weeks, I want to focus on a particular type of dishonesty that I think might hit close to home. 
And I, I think it has a significant relevance today. It's amazing how the Bible speaks to us today. But it's what Warren Wiersbe actually framed as the concept of illusion. Now, in certain settings, illusion can be fun. We, 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 call, we, we have people we call magicians, but we know, I mean, some of them will say they're illusionists, but that's who they all are. They, use, they trick our eyes. That woman isn't really floating in the air. David Copperfield didn't really make the Statue of Liberty disappear. I hope I didn't ruin anything for anybody. <laughs> we see optical illusions all the time. In fact, they can be entertaining. Which one of those lines is longer, A or B? They're the same. They're the same. I, I know you don't believe it. Trust me, they're the same. All right? All those balls are the same color. You don't believe me? It's an optical illusion. And those are fun. Go online, Google optical illusions, look at them. Still, pictures look like they're moving. There's a weird car I couldn't find this week I really wanted to throw up there. Um, these are all optical illusions. I'm going to pull that down and I'll stare at that the whole time. All right. And those are fun. But the issue Proverbs is talking about tied to illusion is this. An illusion is when something pretends to be something when it pretends to be one thing, when it's actually something else. And when we're talking about pictures or fake magicians, and that, that's one thing, but when we're talking about our lives, it's a very different story. One, one entire culture, our entire culture is filled with illusion. Actors spend their lives quoting other people's words and pretending to be someone they're not, and then we march them out as authorities on things that they don't have any more expertise about than I do. That's illusion. It's a concept, it's part of illusion, it is. There's this rampant rise in depression and suicide that researchers are directly tying to this concept of illusion, and it's the deception and dishonesty that comes from our social media feeds. Pe people post the greatest moments of their lives, and they filter the pictures with software, and they add clouds and trees and birds, and they shrink themselves to look thinner, and they change their skin tone and plump their lips, and they pose in 27 different ways, and they get the perfect shot, and they caption it, hashtag just woke up. <laughs> right? Or they sit down, and they spend an hour arranging their breakfast and getting the light right, and they take the pictures of it, and this is my daily breakfast. No, it's not... It's not. It's illusion. It's deception. And then other people, we, they see the lie. They see this, and it, it, it's posted, and somehow they believe their life is terrible now because they didn't spend the day waking up in fake Bora Bora with this fake photo. And people post with fake cash, and they hang out by cars that aren't theirs and pretend it's theirs, and you see all this stuff pop up. It's all illusion. And Proverbs 13 talks about it. It says, one pretends to be rich, and he doesn't have anything, yet he has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet he has great wealth. Now, this is not a new concept. It's in Proverbs, and we actually have a term for it. We call it keeping up with the Joneses. 
You see neighbor's nice house with a driveway filled with new cars, and they got a jet ski or a boat or dirt bikes in the garage, and they're always pretending to be something they're not, right up to the point where they file for bankruptcy and the house is foreclosed on, right? And you look and you say, man, how's that guy doing so good? And I'm over here struggling, driving this 2004 Explorer and these tires. But Proverbs actually also talks about those who pretend to be poor but have wealth. Now, I know we we hear that and we think, well, that's really not that bad. I mean, you don't want anybody flaunting their money around, right? I mean, if somebody pulled up here in a Lamborghini, personally, I'd be like, take me for a ride. But, uh, you know, I'm not judging over what somebody drives. Um, But actually what Proverbs is talking about is still tied to dishonesty, Because the cross-references to verse 7 would lead us to see that the reason they don't want people to know they have money is because they actually don't want people to ask them for help. They, They don't want people to expect them to give more than everybody else is giving just because they have money. And there might be some fear that they would be judged. But it's still dishonesty. And there there are those who who live in reality, and Proverbs says that's the path of wisdom. They don't pretend to be something they're not. The prudent, that's the wrong verse. You can tell where we're going next. The prudent understand where they're going, but fools deceive themselves. The people who are creating this illusion think the only people they're fooling are us, but actually they're in self-deceit. And this illusion is a system that's designed by Lady Folly to drag her followers into more foolishness. And those caught in this dishonesty of illusion end up bringing destruction. But God is a God of truth. And those who know him by faith should have no desire to play the illusion game because it's a lie. Now, the next sin that Proverbs actually speaks a lot to is the sin of drunkenness. It encourages us to avoid drunkenness. And I, I, I want to look at this. I want to set a framework for the conversation and bring up something really quickly. I was raised in a teetotaler culture. So much so, and I'm not kidding. This is a real story. It's not made up. There was an older lady in the church that I was a member of one time that was, that was having a discussion about what does the Bible say about alcohol. And a man said to her, ma'am, you know Jesus turned water into wine. And she said, I know he did, but I really wish he didn't. Right? I mean, that's the level of the culture that I grew up in. And Scripture says a lot, actually. It says enough about the subject of consuming alcohol to have a clear understanding of the topic. And does it teach that consuming alcohol is actually a sin? And it does not teach that strict just consumption is a sin. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of that. We can discuss that. If you want to talk about it after church, I'll, I'll be glad to. But the Old Testament treats wine as a blessing from God. It was given as part of the offering to the temple. It was part of the temple rituals. It was a tithe. The psalmist wrote that God gave wine to make the heart glad. And yes, Jesus turned actual water into actual wine, not grape juice at the marriage of Canaan in the first miracle. However, there are strong warnings in Scripture concerning the dangers associated with drunkenness and overindulging in alcohol. 
And I think those same warnings could be tied to the use of any drug that's abused, including the misuse and abuse of prescription medication. So you can throw that in there with this, because they didn't have prescription medications in Proverbs. Um, So let's look at the warnings. The first warning is that drunkenness will make you a fool. If you've ever seen a drunk or been drunk, you know that Proverbs is right. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, I had some rough college years, and that's as much as I'm going to say about that. But if you've ever been around a group that drinks too much, there is always the loudmouth jerk, that screaming, staggering girl, the, the guy who just wants to fight everyone, and that one weird dude sitting in the corner, and, and all the sober people around them, what do they say? Oh, my God. Fools. They're fools. They're foolish. They're led astray by alcohol and they make foolish decisions. In fact, Habakkuk, I love the way it talks about this. Habakkuk says wine is a traitor because it starts out as your best friend and then it stabs you in the back and leads you down a road you didn't want to go down. It's a traitor. And this led astray is the same language as the call of Lady Folly in Proverbs 6. It's a call to partake in something that will lead to your destruction. And Proverbs 23 gives us a vivid description of what happens to someone in, uh, in what Isaiah calls someone who is a hero at drinking wine. I thought it was a great analogy out of Isaiah. So turn to Proverbs 23 with me. I want us to read this. Those who overindulge, those who have become heroes at drinking wine, those who embrace drunkenness. Proverbs 23, 29 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry too long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. And that's not tied to if it changes color, you know, it's okay. It's just tied to it's pretty. Um, In the end, it bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like the one who lies on top of the mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. And then you wake up. When shall I wake? I must have another drink. This is where this leads, this drunkenness leads. You become addicted so much so that you were drunk from the night before. You took a beating, probably for running your mouth. You wake up, and the first thing on your mind is, I've got to have another drink. Alcohol makes you vulnerable to evil and its dangers, and it's associated with gluttony, 
Almost every time it mentions it directly in Proverbs, it's wine and glutton. Or the gluttonous and the drunk are tied together. It treats this as, as, as a, an issue of, of self-discipline and some other things, but the drunk and the glutton are committing the same sin because both of these sins lead to laziness and they lead to poverty. And Proverbs associates drunkenness with interpersonal strife and distorted senses of thinking and self-destruction and personal abuse and poor leadership and perverted justice. And there's little wonder that Solomon concludes that those who are intoxicated are not wise. Now, Proverbs also talks about murder. And you may think that's a strange one to bring up in a group like this. I don't think any of you are murderers. If you are, you hadn't confessed it. Thank you. Um, but uh, there's, there's an issue of violence from the book of Proverbs. And not all violence is bad, all right? And I know, you know, I'm not supposed to say that, but not all violence is bad. I mean, self-defense could get very violent, but it's not bad. There is a righteous violence, but, but that's not what Proverbs is warning against. People who practice violence without righteous causes will bring their own ruin. It's the same concept, those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and you know, we've talked about that. But what are righteous causes? Right? Self-defense, righteous wars, and yes, that is a real thing. Um, capital punishment. Uh, but in Proverbs 6.17, that we looked at earlier, there is a special significance for hands that shed innocent blood. And this is described in detail in chapter 1 of Proverbs. So turn there. Turn to chapter 1, verse 11 of Proverbs. This is the challenge to uh, the son to not have friends that are violent, that are prone to violence. And verse 11, it says, If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down in the pit, we shall find all precious goods and we shall fill our houses with plunder. And throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. This, this violence and this murder is tied to greed. And it's tied to, to wanting, uh, to covetousness. It's tied to a whole list of sins. And, this, you, and you may be sitting there thinking, Look, there's a lot of people around here who fit this category, but I don't know if they're in this room. But do y'all know there's, this is actually happening? I thought about it a lot this week because I was trying to think of a good example, and I can't think of a better example. We have a $3 billion industry that's tied to Proverbs 1, 11 through 13, 14. $3 billion in a year. That's designed around profiting from the shedding of innocent blood. It's called abortion. With Planned Parenthood heading $2 billion of the $3 billion, selling body parts of aborted babies and then claiming all they want to do is help women have access to health care as if those women couldn't go somewhere else for health. There's no other doctors but Planned Parenthood. Worldwide abortion became legal in Russia in 1920-ish. It's estimated since 1920 there have been a billion babies aborted worldwide. A billion with a B. Do you know you would die before you could count? If you started counting right now, you'd die? Take you over a hundred years to count to a billion? 
hands that shed innocent blood. And before you let yourself off the hook, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that anyone who hates their brother will be judged the same as the murderer. So you might want to consider that as well. Now I saved the biggest to last. The biggest, the biggest sin, yes, there are bigger sins. And it, if you got the notes, you know where I'm headed. But if you don't, it's going to be a surprise. There are more than twice as many verses addressing this one sin in the book of Proverbs than all the other sins. There's like 40, depending on translation, between 42 and 45 verses. Just deal with pride. I always joke that pride is the sin that Christians pridefully confess to. Right? <laughs> Theologian uh, Baron Gimzer said that he thinks that this is listed first. Now, he's guessing, but I like the quote. That this is, list, in the list of abominations, this is first because it stands in the sharpest opposition to what wisdom and the fear of the Lord actually are. So let's consider, according to Proverbs, what happens to the proud. That is not the verse I wanted to pull up. So I'm just going to read these. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. In verse 16, pride goes before destruction. That's the one I wanted. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. James and 1 Peter actually requote this verse when they say, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then in Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured. Be assured. That's a promise. I know we talked about not a lot of promises in Scripture. That's your promise. Be assured the proud will not go unpunished. God hates pride because pride is idolatry. And it is in direct opposition to the wisdom that God has given us. Uh, to live. And this pride can be found. The proud, they have their own way. They believe that their way is better than God's way. And Lady Wisdom is calling. It says, choose the path of wisdom and follow God. But the proud said, nope. There's a way that seems right unto man. But the end is the way of death. See, the proud cannot enter heaven because they refuse to humble themselves and admit they need a savior their way is just fine. Me and God, we got our own thing going. We got it worked out. There was a day when the proud man, this, this, this is what this verse is talking about. It says, there was a day when the proud man stood at a road and looked at that road, and it wasn't the road of wisdom. It was the path of folly. And they said, this looks like a good way to go. And they discover that it's too late because they discover along the way that no matter which way they turn, death is in their way. And Jesus repeated this in Matthew chapter 18 uh, because Jesus was a force to deal with pride among the disciples. In fact, turn there. Let's, let's read that. I'm not, not going to throw that on the screen. Y'all turn there. Turn to Matthew 18, verse 1. This is the disciples asking one of the most prideful questions on the planet. 
Matthew 18 says, At the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I'm sure Jesus probably scratched his head. <laughs> sure, did this. Oh, dear Lord, boys. All this time. <laughs> no, here's what he did. And this is what he was so good at. He grabbed a child. And he called to him a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and this is what he said. He said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not a matter of who's the greatest. I'm not convinced yet that you're going. Right? Let's settle that first, and then we can have the who's greatest discussion. Jesus takes a child. Now, this child would have been old enough to walk, but small enough to cradle, so a toddler, small toddler. And he tells the disciples, the only way to enter heaven is to humble yourself to God in the same way a child humbles themselves to their parents. And we understand that. Children rely on parents to feed them, clothe them, protect them. But the proud, they can do it on their own. And you see this in the little kids. No, no, I can do it, Mom. Then they pour the milk out on the floor. Right? That was actually pride. It was cute pride if you weren't the one that had to clean up the milk. But the proud, they can do it on their own. They don't have a need of God. They, the proud don't need God's salvation. They don't need God's protection. They don't need God's provision. And Jesus said those who cannot humble themselves cannot enter heaven. Why? Because the proud want to get to heaven on their own terms, their own way. And they believe somehow that heaven is theirs. That's how proud they are. When we claim that we have figured out how to get to heaven outside of what God has said is the, his way to get to heaven, which is his, belongs to him, we get the privilege of going there as a reward that is nothing but pride and idolatry. And you may be sitting there right now in this category of the proud. And if you don't acknowledge your total inability to save yourself and in turn submit to your prideful will in complete reliance to God's mercy, you will not enter heaven. And that's our five sins out of Proverbs. There's a whole bunch of others we could have looked at. So now what? Where do we find ourselves? There's a lot of gloom and doom in this message. How do we escape this description? Because, I mean, I read through these things and I feel like, man, this is the way I've been my whole life. According to Proverbs, we're all greedy, dishonest, undisciplined, prideful murderers who hate God. But Proverbs obviously gives us hope. But I actually, I actually want to look at the words of Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, turn there. It'll be the last place I have you turn this morning. Beginning in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, who have we just described here? We've described the sinner in the book of Proverbs. 
But then Paul in verse 11 says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And Paul is speaking to those who have turned to Christ, and they're messing up. They're doing some terrible things in this part of 2 Corinthians. But they followed Christ. They followed the path of wisdom. And they didn't do that on their own. In fact, they couldn't do it on their own. Paul is describing here the greatest miracle of all miracles, the miracle of taking a person who is headed to their own destruction, chasing the path of folly because they're sinners. They were in need of saving. And Paul says, this is who you were. You were greedy and you were dishonest and you were prideful and you were undisciplined and you were chasing lady folly at full speed. But no longer. Jesus purified you from that. And not just for a moment, Not just a one-time cleaning, this one-time cleansing, but an eternal washing that allows God to look at someone who has believed and followed the path of wisdom, followed Christ, and that's repentance. It's the moment when God opens your eyes to who you really are. You see past the illusion. There's no more cognitive dissonance. Past the pretending, past the lies we've told ourselves about how good we are, and we see ourselves for not who we think we are, who we wish we were, but actually who we really are. The Spirit of God reflects back to us exactly what we look like to God, and we find ourselves as disgusting as God does. And it's at that moment that the Holy Spirit has been wooing and drawing and will change your life. He reveals to us how we're wrong. And instead of getting defensive and dismissive and arguing, we stay humble because God is holy and righteous. And we look at God and we say, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And we don't even care. We've given up the fight. We don't care that we're wrong. We just want forgiveness. That's the change. That's the moment of conversion. And converted from what? That's the moment that the same God, because of his holiness, who saw you as a sinner and an abomination, now looks at that person and says, no longer sinner. Now he says, that's, they're one of mine. They're one of my children. One of those that he now loves and he calls us on and he's adopted us and grafted us into his kingdom and we get to go to heaven not because we chose our way but because we rejected our way and chose the path of wisdom. And this happened because of the cross. You want to know what Christ accomplished at the cross? It was this. And he can do the same thing for every person in this room and all you have to do is call on God and repent of pride and greed and deceit and whatever other list of sins you want to throw out there and probably a bunch you can't even remember and allow the atoning work of Jesus Christ to declare you righteous. I once was lost, but now I'm found. No longer a sinner in the eyes of God. And that can happen today. We don't have to remain on the path of folly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.